Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Titus chapter 3. In chapter 1, Paul was focused generally on proper conduct within the congregation itself. That was where he was talking about elders and the need to correct and even rebuke those who were leading others astray. Then in chapter 2, he was talking about proper conduct for families and individuals. That was where we heard his teaching on how young men are to do such and such, and older men are to do such and such, and uh, older women are to teach the younger women to do such and such. Now, here in chapter 3, he's talking about how the Christian should conduct him or herself in public. So the movement has been from in the church to in the home and now to in the public square. How we behave in each of those places is both an overflow and a potential adornment of the gospel or potentially the opposite, meaning if we are misbehaving in any of those areas, it can undermine and discredit the gospel. So William Hendrickson, in his commentary on Titus 3, says here, the Christian message will be ineffective unless, in obedience to the fifth commandment in its broader meaning, believers render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's, closed quote. So he's talking about verse 1 there, as we'll see in just a minute. And he's saying that, If Christians are known as rabble-rousers in the public square, it will make us a stench in the nostrils of our neighbors. They will avoid us. They will disdain us. And that will generally discredit our witness to the person and work of Christ. So we have to be mindful of that. Titus is to teach and model a lifestyle that reflects and commends the gospel in every arena of social life. And as I mentioned here in chapter 3, the focus is on public life. I'll begin reading at verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now, we could probably park here for an hour because just about every word in these two verses represents a challenge to the evangelical church in North America at the moment. And I say that, of course, realizing that only about 80% of our listeners are in North America and 20% come from the rest of the world. That's an interesting dynamic, and it forces me to think carefully about who I'm speaking to when it comes to application. Of course, there is a general application here, and maybe we should start with that. The general application is that Christians in general should be known as good citizens and good neighbors. The general tone of Christianity is not revolutionary. It is subversive. We don't topple governments. We convert citizens. We don't rise up against slave owners. Rather, we seek to win them over to the gospel. A gospel which says that we're all made in the image and likeness of God and we're all brothers and sisters and mothers to Christ. So that gospel is going to change the world if we preach it and give it time to breathe. 
And so here, the entire thrust of this letter is that Christians should be taught to be good friends, good family members, good neighbors, and good citizens. That will buy us permission to speak and to exert influence. That is our strategy, or at least that is the strategy commended to us in the New Testament. Now, as applied to our particular situation here in North America, there has been a lot of political and social unrest over the last several years leading up to COVID and then, of course, greatly amplified by COVID and all the associated stresses and confusions. To that, let me simply say this. Complexity itself does not alter the fundamental principles being espoused in this text. It is more complicated in a time of confusion and cultural declension, and it is more costly to adopt this attitude when the government is no longer as favorable to us as they were a generation ago. But the fundamental principle still applies. Christians are to be submissive to rulers and authorities. We are to be obedient and ready for every good work. Now, are there exceptions? Of course. Most commentators are careful to cite both the general principle and the recognized exception when commenting on this text or on others like it in Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, for example. So Hendrickson, cited above, endorsing the general principle, also goes on in his commentary to say, the exception referred to in Acts 5.29 holds whenever any human regulation clashes with the law of God, close quote. So the general principle is that Christians should be good citizens and are not to be in the revolution business and should be easy to lead and happy to help out in any way. But if the government tries to force us to do what God forbids or attempts to forbid us to do what God commands, then we may disregard the government. And no indignity will be done to the authorities when we do that. Rather, we will do them the good of reminding them that they too are subject to God and exercise authority on his behalf. So we have a general rule and a recognized exception. And the bar for exercising that exception ought to be reasonably high. We mustn't make decisions in haste or in heat. We must strive to maintain our gentle and patient demeanor in the public square. John Calvin says helpfully here, those who call themselves believers must show restraint. They should not only refrain from all harm and aggression, but should bear suffering patiently. They should also strive as best they can to maintain harmony and brotherhood among themselves, nor should they harass unbelievers, but should try to win them over by gentleness, closed quote. Remember, Jesus rode up to the city on a donkey, the foal of a donkey. So we ought to be careful about our demeanor when approaching the culture as well. Thomas McComiskey commenting on Zechariah 9, verses 9 to 10, which prophesied the approach and demeanor of Messiah, said, So it has always been that the church does not effectively spread the gospel by sword or by arrogance, but by mirroring the humble spirit of its king and savior, close quote. That's exactly the point that the Apostle Paul is attempting to impress upon Titus. We must always be asking, does this behavior, does my attitude, does my approach to the culture commend 
or discredit the gospel. Friends, there are more pressing concerns than the maintenance of your rights and privileges in the culture. Heaven and hell are on the line here. And therefore, job one needs to be displaying and adorning the gospel. Now, there's more that could be said here, but we need to move on. Paul says that we must conduct ourselves gently, submissively, and charitably in the public arena. Verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Here he seems to be saying that we mustn't be aggressive and angry in our approach to the culture because, of course, we would have been just like those people that so agitate us now were it not for the grace and mercy of God. But the Lord was patient and gentle with us, and therefore we ought to be patient and gentle with others. In verse 3, Paul provides a seven-point description of the culture that provides a perfect counterpart to the seven-point list of expected virtues to be found within the church. So in verses 1 to 2, he talked about how Christians are supposed to be submissive, obedient, ready for every good work, not slanderers, not quarrelsome, gentle, and courteous. Now here in verse 3, he says that the culture in general is made up of people who are foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to passions and pleasures, indulging in malice, filled with envy, hated and hating others. Remember, Jesus called upon us to be the salt of the earth. That implies distinction and contrast. So Paul here is just echoing that and saying, don't be like the surrounding culture. On the contrary, live out the distinctive values and commitments of the gospel. Here, we see the assumption that the gospel will produce change in the life of the believer. You were once like that, Paul says, but now you are different. Now you've been lifted up, rescued, and renewed by the unmerited favor and grace of God. He begins talking about that in verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, verses 4 to 7 are a single sentence in the original Greek, and some commentators believe that they preserve for us a fragment of an ancient baptismal hymn. And that may well be. In verse 8, Paul refers to it as this saying, using the Greek word logos, which can mean a bunch of different things, of course. It could mean this speech or this message or this sentiment. So it's definitely a recognized saying. Whether it was a sung saying or not is difficult to say for sure. It does neatly summarize the marrow of the Christian gospel. So it would be a perfect speech or song, for baptismal candidates to memorize. I slightly prefer the NIV for the first part of verse 4. It renders that as, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. The Greek word translated there as kindness is krestos, which is an exclusively Pauline term in the New Testament. He uses it to refer to kindness or tolerance, usually of God toward us. 
The word translated as love here by the NIV and as loving kindness by the ESV is philanthropia, from which we get our English word philanthropic, which means love of man. When we use that word, we're usually speaking about a person who does good deeds for other people. But here, when Paul uses it in this context, he's talking about the good work that God has done in Christ on our behalf. And of course, that's what the gospel is. The gospel is the good news of what God has done in Christ for our salvation. And Paul provides a summary of that essential message in verses 5 to 7. He says that God saved us not because of any works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. The Tyndale New Testament commentary says helpfully here, the apostle was deeply conscious of the impossibility of attaining salvation by means of human effort. It is God himself who has brought it about because of his mercy. This is a theme of which the apostle never tires. Closed quote. Paul goes on to speak of this salvation using two very important terms. He says first that we are saved by the washing of regeneration. Now the idea of washing obviously calls to mind the removal of sin, that forgiveness that we have in the gospel. The word regeneration means literally rebirth. Louis Burkhoff provides a helpful theological definition of regeneration in his summary of Christian doctrine. He says that regeneration is that act of God by which the principle of the new life is implanted in man and the governing disposition of the soul is made holy. It is a fundamental change in the principle of life and the governing disposition of the soul and therefore affects the whole man. It is completed in a moment of time and is not a gradual process like sanctification, closed quote. So to bring that down to street level, he's saying there that regeneration is something that God does inside a human being. God does it. You don't help because you were dead in your trespasses and sin, Ephesians 2.1. And dead people, of course, are notoriously unhelpful. So regeneration is a one-handed work, we often say. It is something that God does in us, implanting in us a new governing disposition. I love that phrase, a new governing disposition. Of course, that's exactly what we need to become the people we were created and intended to be because all of us were born with a defective governing disposition. We're all born with a compass that does not point true north. That's why you can't just do whatever feels right or, or follow your heart. I know we tell that to kids all the time, but that is actually terribly unhelpful advice. According to the Bible, the human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? That's Jeremiah 17, 9. So salvation has to begin with the gift of a new governing disposition. So far, so good. But what does Paul mean when he talks about the renewal of the Holy Spirit in verse 5b? There are two options. Some say he's talking very comprehensively about justification and sanctification. So justification is the washing of regeneration that deals with our sin and our essential brokenness, gives us a right standing before God. And then renewal of the Holy Spirit would be speaking to the subsequent process of sanctification and transformation, which, according to 2 Corinthians 3.18, happens gradually over time by one degree of glory to the next. That's one option. But actually, I think the other option is the better option. 
I think Paul here is speaking in an Old Testament dialect. In the Old Testament, the fundamental act of salvation was talked about in terms of water and spirit. So in Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, for example, God promises, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules, closed quote. So there, the future salvation that God is promising consists of water washing and spirit giving. And that, of course, is what it will take to make dead people live again the way they were created and intended to live. And I think Jesus is picking that language up in his conversation with Nicodemus in John 3, 5, when he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Close quote. So I think that here in Titus 3, 5, Paul is just using very biblical language to talk about one thing, not two things. I think he's talking about the fundamental act of salvation, which is wrought in the inner person by means of water and spirit. God does this so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's where Paul lands. We are saved so that we might become sons, daughters, and heirs of all the riches of eternity Thanks be to God. Verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So Paul here says, what I've just said, or rather what I've just quoted, is a good and trustworthy summary of the gospel. Teach that. Emphasize that so that folks will overflow in good works and kindness. That will be good and profitable for all people. That's a fascinating perspective. The apostle seems to be operating under the assumption that right belief will result in right behavior. In essence, he says to Titus, if you can get your people believing right, then that will eventually result in their behaving right, and that will be a blessing to all. That good approach is now contrasted with a bad approach. In verse 9, Paul says, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. All right, so here, as Paul winds down the letter, he returns to the issue of the false teaching that was being advanced by some in the Cretan church. He addressed this originally in Titus 1, verses 10 to 16. As I cited there, George W. Knight III provides a very useful summary. He says, This false teaching is, then, like that found in 1 Timothy, but with a Cretan flavor as well. In some, it is concerned with Jewish myths and genealogies, which apparently set the tone for the way in which it handles the law. It is ascetic, but also rebellious and disobedient. It opposes the apostolic teaching and turns away from it, and it is motivated by gain. Quote. 
I suggested there that a modern-day comparison might be the people on the internet who claim to have figured out the mystical significance of certain Jewish feast days or the potential eschatological significance of the various blood moons. That is the sort of foolish nonsense that Titus is to avoid. Now, notice that. Paul doesn't tell him to refute it. He tells him to avoid it. The people who are dealing in this nonsense are to be corrected, if at all possible. If they don't respond to repeated attempts at correction, then Titus is to avoid them altogether. What exactly does that mean? Some commentators understand it to refer to excommunication. Hendrickson, for example, takes that approach. He says, official exclusion from church membership is probably indicated. Others, though, understand Paul to be speaking less formally. Donald Guthrie says here, It is a vague term which does not convey the idea of excommunication, but means merely to leave out of account. The lenience advocated is striking, for it is only on the third occasion of warning that the more serious action of avoidance is to be taken. John Calvin seems to fall somewhere between those two positions. He says, The meaning of the apostle's words is as if he had said that heretics must be rebuked with solemn and severe censure, close quote. And Calvin actually has a pretty high bar for what constitutes heresy, so we do have to be careful about feeling empowered by that statement to solemnly rebuke everyone who disagrees with us on Twitter. Remember, the whole theme here is about how important it is to stick to the essential gospel. Teach what is true and what is profitable. Avoid quarreling and dissension. But... If you have someone in your church who constantly wants to talk in his or her small group about the blood moons or why we should all be doing church on Saturday or why we should still be celebrating the Feast of Trumpets, then correct them, warn them, make every attempt to win them. But then if you can't, you're going to need to isolate them. Let them know that if that is what they want to talk about, then they will need to find somewhere else to do it. Now, that is hard. But if you can't do that, then you probably shouldn't be an elder or a pastor. In verses 12 and following, we have Paul's concluding remarks and personal greetings. He says, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. So it seems that as of the time of writing, Paul wasn't sure which pastor would be sent to relieve Titus in Crete. It would be either Artemis or Tychicus. From that, we infer that the situation was dire enough that Paul didn't want the church left alone for even a moment. A church in crisis requires strong leadership. From this, we also get a bit of a window into Paul's strategy for church planting. In the first generation, he took a bit of a top-down approach. He wanted to lay a straight and strong foundation, so he used his authority. He appointed leaders. He set things in order. And then it appears that once the church was firmly established, he expected them to be able to produce and install their own leaders. But for now, in this planting stage, Titus is to remain until his replacement arrives, no doubt carrying this letter. At that point, Titus is relieved and is to join Paul in Nicopolis for the winter. 
Nicopolis was a city in Greece described by the commentaries as a fine winter resort. <laughs> that sounds good to me. In verse 13, Paul tells Titus to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. From that, we infer that Titus was to draw upon church funds to host these individuals and then to give them some money and further resources so that they can continue traveling wherever it was they were going in service of the gospel. Zenos the lawyer is only mentioned here, so we don't actually know anything about him other than his name and the fact that he was some kind of lawyer. Apollos is well known to Bible readers. He was a highly respected preacher of the gospel who is mentioned in both the Acts of the Apostles and Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Paul says that the hospitality and support shown to these people, whom we presume to be traveling preachers and evangelists, will set a good example of what it looks like to be devoted to good works. Matthew Henry says helpfully here, Let Christians, those who have believed in God, learn to maintain good works, especially such as these, supporting ministers in their work of preaching and spreading the gospel, hereby becoming fellow helpers to the truth, closed quote. Sometimes in contemporary evangelicalism, we make a false distinction between practical good works, such as digging a well or providing hot soup to the poor, from spiritual good works, such as supporting missionaries and gospel preachers. But we see no such distinction in the Bible. Good works are good works. And Titus is to lead and mobilize his church in pursuing them. This will serve to meet needs and will result in the church being fruitful. Verse 15. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. We don't know who was with Paul when he wrote this letter, but the form of the greeting speaks to that warm fraternity that the apostle maintained with his team of church planters and ministers. They were a family. They were Paul's sons in the faith, and he greets them and speaks to them as such. The conclusion of the letter, grace be with you all, is almost identical to the conclusion found at the end of First and Second Timothy. The only difference here is the addition of the word all, which probably indicates that Paul intended this letter, though it was written to Titus, to be read aloud before the entire congregation when next they assembled for worship. Paul wanted them to hear what he had just written to Titus. This is Paul, the wise apostle and father in the faith, lending a bit of gravitas to his young apprentice in the weighty tasks and responsibilities to which he has been assigned. Titus is to set things in order. He is to organize and mobilize a Christian church. He is to teach them how to live out and adorn the Christian faith. He is to show them how the gospel must be lived in the congregation, in the home, and in the public square for the glory of the Lord and the benefit of all people. Thanks be to God. And thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you would like to support this program, please consider leaving us a rating or a review on iTunes as it will help other people find and access these materials. If you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find our entire library of content over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca, or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes store or on Google Play. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, just go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right-hand corner. You can also contribute through the Into the Word app. 
We hope to connect with you again really soon right here for another episode of Into the Word. <laughs>